Hey everyone, Asim here. Carbon Hack is back this year. The hackathon will take place from Monday, March the 18th to Monday, April the 8th, 2024. Carbon Hack 24 is all about redefining the way we measure software to reduce its environmental footprint. At the heart of this hackathon is Impact Framework, an open source tool that lets you compute and report the environmental impacts of software applications accurately. Here's the challenge. In small teams, participants will have the freedom to choose from a variety of prize categories. So how can you become part of Carbon Hack 24? It's as simple as signing up on our website at grnsft.org forward slash hack forward slash podcast. Join us for three weeks of exciting challenges where engineers, designers, and content creators will use Impact Framework to measure software's environmental footprint. We can't wait to see what innovations and solutions emerge from this incredible event. See you there. The flip side of this, maybe the thing they're going for is saying if cloud carbon footprint is just ubiquitous like hoovering is, mm. maybe that's the thing you'll just say, well, you're just going to CCF it or cloud carbon footprint it. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Environment Variables, brought to you by the Green Software Foundation. In each episode, we discuss the latest news and events surrounding green software. On our show, you can expect candid conversations with top experts in their field who have a passion for how to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of software. I'm your host, Asim Hussain. Welcome to another episode of The Week in Green Software, where we bring you the latest news and updates from the world of sustainable software development. I'm your host, Asim Hussain. In this episode, we have some exciting announcements from various organizations, and we're going to cover some interesting articles about the environmental impact of cloud and machine learning. And finally, we're going to share some opportunities for development for the world of green software. But before we dive in, let me introduce my esteemed guest and colleague for this episode of Twigs. With us today, we have Chris Adams. Hi, Asim. My name is Chris. For folks who have never heard of me before, I work as the one of the chairs of the policy working group at the Green Software Foundation. And I also work as the executive director of the Green Web Foundation, a small non but fierce nonprofit focused on reaching an entirely fossil free internet by 2030. And I also work with the online community climateaction.tech, which is where I met Asim. Oh, the Climate Action Tech Days. Yeah. That and OMG Climate as well, actually. Oh, yeah, OMG Climate. I remember the OMG Climate. You should start those again. Oh, have you started those again, actually, out of interest? For the listeners, OMG Climate was a, a, a conference, an unconference that Chris was running. Yes, I can talk about this. We can segue into that gracefully yeah. in the podcast, if you'd like, after we've covered some of the news things. Okay, But yeah. this is something that we would like to do a bit more of. And there's a kind of fun story about why it's called OMG Climate and where some of that came from. So it's also open source. So if you like the idea of unconferences around climate, then maybe we should leave a bit of time for that, actually, Asim, because there are some kind of green software and digital sustainability-related events in the coming months that are probably worth pointing people to. So that was me introduced. That's you introduced. And before we dive in, just a reminder that everything we talk about will be linked in the show notes below this episode. So... I think 
Chris, to kick off our news from the world of green software, Microsoft, a company I used to work for, Microsoft has launched a new tool called the Surface Emissions Estimator that helps customers understand the carbon footprint of their devices purchased. It is the Surface device range that purchases that are purchased. It uses a lifecycle assessment model to provide accurate estimates of carbon emissions. And it also, I believe, helps you adjust those emissions based upon where you are, what you bought, where it's been delivered and things like that. I yeah. thought this was pretty cool, actually. Have you, had a, have you had a go with it yet at all? Because I don't own a Surface thing myself, but I'm happy to talk about it because I think this is actually a, a field that probably has some quite far-reaching implications on how people like work with, with, with gadgets and things and, at all. So first of all, you, you shared this link before. So we've, you, you've seen how it basically, when you talk about, talks about Surface, it shows you like maybe a Surface, are they called laptops or tablets or is there another word for oh, this kind of removable thing they have? just called Surfaces. I don't know. I just think they're Microsoft oh, devices. God, that's confusing. Yeah. But I believe the whole range is, everything is at the tablet and the, the laptop, they're all called Surfaces. Funnily enough, I do have a Windows machine now. I'm at Intel, but while I was at Microsoft, I had a MacBook my whole journey so I, I missed out i missed out heathen. on the whole the, <laughs> yeah i was almost called a heathen on my first day of, of, of my microsoft training but anyway no i actually haven't because while i was there ola who's the person behind ola fagerstrom i hope i pronounced in a second name correctly i spoke to him about it and i think i saw early preview design sketches of what it looked like but i actually haven't tried out the latest tool myself Okay, I can talk a little bit about it because I gave it a go before oh, this. Oh, excellent. And there are some previous, there's like prior art that is actually quite useful to know about. So one of the things it does basically is let's assume if you were to buy a laptop or a gadget or if you're going to use the Microsoft parlance, a Surface for one of these, it basically shows you where the emissions lie in the actual creation of this. Because a lot of the time, people might think about, well, I bought a machine, but I now to be, need to be really careful about how I use it, for example, because I might assume that all the emissions are from this kind of use phase rather than the making phase. And the key thing that you learn from it when you were to choose something, see whereabouts you are in the world, how many you might use. If you're like, say, a medium to small... Actually, if you basically have... You're working in an organization that's purchased a number of these. It will tell you what the likely environmental footprint of those is over a particular time. And then if you held on to them for, say, six years, for example, or three years or four years, it will show you what the environmental footprint of that might be to own that and to have it for this time here. And this is quite useful because people didn't really think too much about the embedded emissions in electronics for quite a long time. It's only in the last year and a half that it's really become much more of a kind of thing that people focus on. People have typically been looking at, say, the energy more than the actual purchasing parts. And, and there's a French company called Boa Vista, which has created, has been collating lots and lots of data from lots of companies French about non-profit, this. Non it's company. a non-profit. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that's interesting there is if you don't have a Microsoft Surface, but you think this is cool, they have similar tools so that you can basically pick maybe a Dell laptop or an Apple MacBook or something like that. And then it will give you some numbers. But the thing that's been a problem has been that some companies have been somewhat reticent about sharing these numbers. So as a result, people have been either they have to like make guesses or they are do not have particularly useful guidance. So if, if there's a company sharing this stuff up front, 
in a kind of structured data fashion, which is necessary for this. And I assume they are sharing it as open data for everyone else to be using, surely, right? Then that's it's a good sign for you to see this and it helps you understand how useful it is to just hold on to a device for maybe a little bit longer and see how that might fit into some of your plans to to basically reduce the emissions associated with the making part of running any kind of digital services yourself. Yeah, I love the work of Bobis on there and the latest version of their API. I was taking a look at it the other day. They've done wonders based off of the, as you say, like the incredibly limited amount of data there is out there, but there's a lot of extrapolation. And they're telling mm. me the day, like some of the LCA work that they're using is like 10 years old. Yes, LCA here stands for life cycle analysis. When I see mentioned these things like ISO 14040 and 14044, there's basically complicated methodologies which people use to talk about what the environmental impacts associated with any tools with building and operating something over its life cycle, over, over its life cycle. And LCA is the kind of short term for this. And actually, I hadn't seen the parallels myself, but it seems really obvious right now. What Microsoft Surface estimator, emissions estimator is, is it basically hopefully a more accurate version of what Boa Vista is giving you because it's providing you with that data. Remember the conversations around this originally, because it was based around the idea if you're an organization with like 10,000 employees and you bought each of them a Surface laptop, that's a lot of things to keep a track of. And also like those employees are going to be based in different parts of the world. The laptops got shipped over from different locations. Did you dive into the tool Surface, <laughs> whether or not it took that kind of regional variability into account? I don't know where Surface, let's assume Surfaces all get shipped from the US. If you, Would your US employees have less emissions than your European because you're just the travel is less? Does it take things like that into account? So when I was looking at this, what you could see is you could actually, it does show some information about the carbon intensity of different grids. And it does talk about the end of life part of it, but it doesn't necessarily, but I didn't see, I, I didn't see so much specifically about shipping. So if I'm in one part of the world, is there an environmental impact of getting it sent over here, for example? Proportionally, that's relatively small, meaning it's not being flown around, which in some cases it actually unfortunately yeah. can be basically so it doesn't talk about that but it does tell you what the environmental impact is from the grid itself so if you were running something in i don't know let's oh, say if it got pennsylvania where there's loads right. of coal it's going to say that proportionally the use phase is going to be heavier than say france or montreal where like more than 99 percent. this is montreal for example or like uh, quebec most of the power is coming from either hydro or nukes so therefore, it's going to be very relatively low carbon electricity. So it doesn't does seem, does take that part into account. So there seems to be a very unusual correlation between low carbon electricity and speaking French. There must be some research there about. Honestly, I, it's going to sound a bit weird, but like a significant part of it is, in my view, having a real interest in there being a very strong state. So the ah. entire thing about, say, France being full of nukes and France like using, it's because historically they had massive investment in the 70s and 80s in, into nuclear power through the state-owned systems, which is not really what you saw in other parts of the world. And uh, also you've got to remember that France didn't really have much of a kind of fossil fuel, didn't have much in the way of reserves. So they chose to have that as their way of achieving some degree of energy independence. But the thing that when you see lots of people talk about nuclear these days is like they say, oh, we should be more like France. But that means you have an entirely state-owned system where you have a very different structure to how any of this stuff works. And 
people who tend to be talking about that tend to be the people who prefer to have a small estate for this stuff. So it's like, okay, do you really want that? Because everything else you're suggesting suggests you probably don't think the government should be involved in all this stuff. I think one thing I will state, though, is that I think it's interesting the way choice, because I think I will actually, I won't, I won't, I, even though I'm very out of my depth, I'm going to carry on a little bit, because the, I don't know if you know this, Chris, but the French energy firm actually owns, I believe, half of British gas, which is really fascinating because... You're talking Centrica, right? So they own Centrica? Centrica? Yeah. yeah. It's a British gas or the energy, but they own a significant part of the UK energy market, which is fascinating because, you know, Britain privatized the energy market, which was sold predominantly to a state-owned energy firm in, in France. So now now with the energy challenges that are happening across Europe, France is somewhat protected, whereas anyway, we're all playing like double, triple our energy prices. Actually, so France over in the last year, there was a big thing about the cost of power going super high in France because while there was historically lots and lots of investment in the previous nuclear stations and what you might refer to as thermal energy where you basically heat water up to make steam to turn a turbine to, to, make, to generate power, what you found was that the you had all these kind of issues with corrosion and stuff, but also because you had all these heat waves reducing the amount of water available, that meant that it was really hard to keep things cool, which meant things were coming offline. So you end up losing lots and lots of what you would refer to as firm nuclear generation, right. which put the cost of power really high in France. Because nuclear, that, because nuclear, yeah, had nuclear, to thermal, baseline, yeah, basically, yeah, right, right, right. It wasn't just nuclear; it was any form of thermal energy had this problem because it's all relying on water to keep things running. If you're going to ha- turn water into steam, the water has to come from somewhere, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so it, it didn't increase the prices by nuclear going down and p- having to burn more coal, more coal and gas, which is everything increased. There was price. just like yeah, there yeah. was just a shortfall of power, and as a result, the cost of electricity went through the roof really high in France as well. And you saw that manifesting, and yeah, that, this is one thing that you saw a lot of basically. So what you end up happening was the French government ended up essentially bailing out. The large countries doing a massive investment at that point, which is somewhat different to how we did it over here. But let's now we can move on because I think we've just gone on a off on one actually. On off on one. There is. I do want to say one thing. I think more about the not about what that. Let's just leave politics for uh, for other people. Well, no, we can talk politics. But the one thing I want to say that I think is quite interesting about the Microsoft Surface Emissions Estimator project, and I think this is harks back also to what we spoke about last week, which is Will Buchanan. And his work at Microsoft as well. Ola, I remember meeting Ola initially from this, you know, what's called a green team. So this employee-led, grassroots, sustainably focused individuals inside Microsoft. And that's where Ola was. And from my where my memory serves, and Ola, please message out and reach, and I'll issue a correction in the future podcast episode if I'm wrong about this. But you, you, Ola wasn't in sustainability at the start. This was a personal project, something that he personally felt was important and pushed and pushed and years later, it's now been released. And this is what one of my things, and I think actually one of the things that we were really talking about in, in Climate Action Tech, which was you know, employee-driven work inside organizations is so important. I think probably a lot of what is eventually advertised like a big corporate Endeavor really starts off with a couple of passionate people or one passionate person inside an organization who pushes and pushes until the lever finally moves. And so that's this kind is of true. Yeah. the drawdown. You, if you've ever heard the term drawdown, they've got the nice kind of shiny coffee table books. One of the people leading drawdown labs, I forget her name, damn it, but she, there's a really interesting interview oh, with her yeah. on my climate journey. And she basically talks about, yeah, I think that employees are one of the kind of 
untapped or unrealized groups that we need to rely on more to actually see achieve some of the changes. Yep. So next up, we have just a really interesting article that came to our attention on Forbes, actually, reporting on a a company called Cycloids, GreenOps. So GreenOps, we have the term GreenOps mentioned this week. Last week, we had DevSusOps. So the decision is still not yet made as to which term will win out. But Cycloids, GreenOps tool. And I find this, Chris, a little bit frustrating. It's called Cloud Carbon Footprint, mm. which... So basically, Cy- Cycloid have released a tool called the Cloud Carbon Footprint, which measures the cloud carbon footprint of cloud computing. Interestingly, there's a whole other open source project called the Cloud Carbon Footprint, which does exactly the same thing, and it's from ThoughtWorks. So there's a little bit of confusion there. I initially, when I saw that, I was like, what's going on? Have they bought an open source product? But they're just named it the same as an open source product. Was I this the case? I couldn't tell because when I looked at this, I thought, oh, they... A, I was confused by this as well. So I thought, hang on, those these numbers look somewhat similar. And mm-hmm. when I look at the when I look at this, the screenshots don't look exactly like cloud carbon footprint. But yeah, cloud carbon footprint is, is a term that is associated with a relatively well known and probably like the most well known open source tool for this. So I'm I was surprised by this actually. And I'm actually meant to ask the ThoughtWorks folks and say hi. Is this you guys or has someone actually just rebadged it and provided a hosted service? Because it may well be that, in fact, because I, I, we know that's the oh. thing that ends up being used in lots of places. And there are various other providers, like one company is called Green Pixie. They use some of the underlying parts of Cloud Carbon Footprint in the same. And I suspect that this might actually be a, it could plausibly be a kind of view on the existing version of this because right. if you don't want to run an inf- some infrastructure to work out the footprint of your infrastructure, then I can see why you might want to have someone else manage that because the Cloud Carbon Footprint tool from ThoughtWorks is, it's got some stuff like how to set up with Terraform and stuff and how to run things mm-hmm. in TypeScript. And if your team isn't comfortable using TypeScript or this stuff here, then maybe it does make sense to use a hosted service for this. So that's my guess, basically. Now, while you were talking, I was double checking the blurb, and that's they actually specifically mention that it is based on that, that very same project, the Cloud Carbon Footprint Open Source Project, which makes me feel good. I was I was confused a little bit, but that's very clearly mentioned in their marketing material. This is based upon the open source project that I was talking about, which is really exciting because you're right; it is quite complicated to to set up Cloud Carbon Footprint. It's not for everybody. It is a cloud based tool that you need it hosted somewhere in order to work. And I believe how it works, remember how it works, Chris, I believe it works predominantly through billing data, at least the AWS component of it, I remember correctly. Yeah, there are two ways it would use the information. So the first one was that you could query the billing APIs provided by large cloud providers. And and based on that, they would say you spent in the last week you spent maybe a hundred thousand euros on Amazon EC2 or Microsoft's equivalent or Google's version of that. And then it would provide a conversion factor to say for this many hours, it would likely be this based on the size of your machine and how long it's been running. And I'm not sure what time, but they might do that depending on if you have that kind of access, basically. So it will give you some figures like that. And that is the main way that it used to work. I think there is actually an alternative way that you can get the data from there. For example, you can also use utilization-based approach. So they would read from, say, Amazon CloudWatch, Google's something stack driver, all this stuff. Yeah, whatever. This is the equivalent, the equivalent for Google and that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I actually dived into this because I opened a PR, a PR, a pull request on the project because 
And when I look through it, it's not actually that complicated to get this information for things which are not just the big three. So as long as you have an idea of how long something has been running and what the kind of utilization is, like how much of the CPU you're using for any of these things, which is exposed by lots of providers, then you could do this. So Hetzner could do this, Scaleway could do this, DigitalOcean could do this quite easily. It's just a case of people not doing that yet. But no, it's open. It would be really cool to see that. And ThoughtWorks provides some on-prem a service where they'll basically plug this stuff in so that you can have numbers specific from non-cloud infrastructure to have a kind of consolidated view of your emissions from all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's good. This is it's making the technology available to a lot of other people, which is very useful. I think it's interesting, and I can I see there's another there's another announcement in the newsletter this week. I think it's interesting because Cycloid is a DevOps organization. I'm you know, this is more and more in the cloud space. This is I these are the organizations that we're hearing more and more about. If you're or the not organizations, I should say, like providers and providers from DevOps. Because as Anne mentioned last week, and she was quoting Adrian, it's very much aligned, like carbon emissions reduction is aligned somewhat to the DevOps, to what's a cost reduction and all these other aspects that DevOps industry It's also is easy to aligned. measure, dude. It's yeah? also easy to like take numbers uh, from here, apply a number, apply a conversion factor and come up with another number that you're being told that yeah. you need to report against yeah. by the C-suite or the CSR or investors and anything like that. So... In many ways, you can think of these as a kind of pain reliever, whereas before they were considered like a kind of vitamin. Oh, isn't this great? And you're like, oh, can this help that person go away so I can focus on my existing work? That's how some of this is actually being presented to people. (laughs) Because there are like regulatory drivers for this increasingly. One thing that's confusing with this, I assume, because we were confused by Cloud Carbon Footprint being the name of a well-known project and a commercial service from a totally separate, unrelated organization. Yeah. And this kind of makes me glad that there is a trademark on some of the green software stuff, because I feel that if I'm confused by this, then I suspect other folks would also be confused by this. And I think when you look at other projects, like say Firefox, for example, or Django or WordPress, people are a little bit careful about how the name can be used, because it might not be obvious to what you use. The flip side of this Maybe the thing they're going for is saying if cloud carbon footprint is just ubiquitous, like hoovering is, mm. maybe that's the thing you'll just say, well, you're just going to CCF it or cloud carbon footprint it. Yeah. I don't know. But it's a, it made me realize that this confusion is only going to happen more and more as people start thinking about this or have to be mindful of this. Yeah, thinking more generously, which is not a usual trait of mine, but just to give the opposite viewpoint. So it also could possibly be seen as a sign of respect. You're a commercial organization, you want to use a product and you just name it the same as the open source. So you're not, the fact that they mention it very explicitly in their marketing material also is not trying to hide it. But uh, but yeah, I see your point because this is the like, Kubernetes, I believe Kubernetes is trademarked. So you can fork it and call it Chrysanetes, but you can't call it Kubernetes. So yeah, that's really, yeah. So that's, yeah, I think that's something pretty cool. So we've got a minor segue into IP law. Spoke about the actual project itself. <laughs> spoke about yeah. the fact that it's open source and can yeah. be extended and tagged in various directions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Happy, I've, I'm happy with that. How we covered that. Yeah. Yeah. What's next? How green what's, is your cloud? Ah, what's yes. What's... How green is your cloud? So this is an article on Tech Monitor. And so, as you might guess, this article is about the environmental impact of the cloud and just highlights some interesting stats. I always wonder, whenever I read any of these articles, I wonder what stat they're going to quote for the cloud's impact. 
because it's a wide, the band of, as you could quote, is significantly wide. But they quote, the cloud computing contributes between 2.5 and 3.7% of global carbon emissions. And they are quoting a 2019 study from the Shift Project. I've seen other stats. I've seen as low as 1%. 3.7, I think, is one of the highest in terms of current stats. The stat I actually find quite interesting is the one from Ericsson, which is, I think, is more interesting because it talks about the growth of our industry. So if we do nothing else, I believe than what we're doing right now, by 2040, we'll be, I believe it's 14% of global emissions, which I think is a really interesting way of looking at it. Because 14% it, of global emissions, yeah, that's like steel. Yeah, right? that's like all of, almost all of transport. That's, <laughs> yeah. I'm struggling with that, to Are be honest. Are you struggling with that? Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, struggling with that being it's between 40%. 1% and 14%. That's what we know. We, we're almost certain. Yeah, it? that's a, so for context, like shipping, all of shipping, that's like between 1% and 2%. And so I think agriculture is like 20 to 30% or so. It's like a, these numbers, they are, we're not very good at like measuring, like keeping an eye on this stuff, but 14% seems incredibly high for a part of the existing technology sector right? Not everything is going to be cloud. Just so we're clear, they're not saying it's 14% now. It's going to be, it'll be 14% by 2040. Even then. And that would mean that cloud computing would have to overtake the manufacturing of steel or the manufacturing of concrete as a key emitter. And like, you could possibly make the argument that in 40 years, like between now and 2040, that steel will become so clean and people are going to shift away from using all this kind of coke and stuff to make steel to go there. And likewise, the same with cement, even though cement's been like the significant driver. Yeah, you maybe have that. But I think between now and 2040, like technology is probably one of the easier of the sectors to decarbonize. This seems like someone's taking some numbers and just like basically pointing it yeah, rather than actually thinking what's going to happen. I, I can see your point. There's probably multiple variables at play here. They're all moving independently. But if you froze some of those variables and extrapolated out, there's probably an argument to say there's 14%. Like, for instance, like in the incredibly complicated and lab that exists in Asim's mind that just ran an experiment with his thoughts. Like, I can't imagine the manufacture of chips is going to be that the major part of what that 14% is, it has to be energy consumption. That has to be that, in, in terms of what that model, it has to be the energy consumption. I cannot see 10% of all global emissions in the world making chips by 2040. And then if you maybe assume the current grid mix and all things out to 2040, and then maybe you can get that argument. If you then have something a bit more complicated, then assumes the grid mix is going to get cleaner by the time we get to 2040, and then things maybe balancing think themselves out. So probably that, that, that stat probably comes... Well, anyway, multiple levels of guessing even on my side as right. to what they I, think. While you were saying that, Asim, I looked up our word and You looked it up? You yeah, looked it up? I looked it up, yeah. Oh. I wanted to bring some light rather than just heat okay. into this discussion. This is our world and data, which is generally pretty good. Iron and steel is around 7% of global emissions, what we, what we have right now, all right? So it wasn't 15. And agriculture is probably around 18-ish percent. So like I was at the wrong end of the 20 thing. So this still feels like... So all of cloud computing being double the footprint of all the iron and all the steel being made, that seems very high. Chris, last week, this is quite interesting because last week you quoted a stat which Anne found challenging to accept, which is there's 7.3 million data centers in the world. And now a stat's been quoted. I think what's interesting is there's stats here that 
boggle the mind because the scale of what we're talking about is really hard for human beings to imagine. But I've had colleagues of mine, one of my colleagues gave a, a presentation, which I thought was really fascinating. She took a picture of a rack and then the, the picture of the room, a rack is a server rack, a picture of the room, a picture of the building, a picture of the campus, a picture of campuses, part of like multiple campuses, and you're already an enormous space. And that's just one of those 7.3 million data centers that exist in the world. So I think that could form part of the resistance that we're finding in our minds as to the scale of where we're in. One thing that I saw from there, there's like another highlight in this piece. It says, despite sustainability now appearing in the top 10 business priorities, only 9% of companies are allocating resources towards sustainability goals. Mm. And like, I can't help thinking, you can't have both. You can't say it's a priority. Of course you can. And then say you're not going to be... Can you imagine if we said yeah. revenue is one of our top 10 business priorities, so we're not going to allocate anyone's time to chasing revenue inside this organisation. Do you see how it sounds a little bit unconvincing here? Or like, a, And then if you look at the companies, let's say Google, Amazon, Microsoft, large companies, then we say, okay, if it's a priority, then why are the emissions continuing to grow every single year? by at least between 15 to 20% each of these companies year on year. That suggests it's not as much of a priority as you might be thinking. If we know the science is saying we need to be reducing these year on year. So I've struggled with that part. But well, I think hmm. it's, it, there's a colleague of mine recently did some analysis on, you know, this website Net Zero Tracker. Have you seen Net Zero Tracker? Uh, I think so, yeah. They analyze not just Net Zero, but like other the various kind of sustainability commitments of organizations around the world, they like score the commitment on a kind of red, green, blue basis. And they then score them on, this is your commitment that you've made. Let's look at the plans that you've published for actually how you're going to meet those commitments. And what's amazing is looking at it, it looks 58% of Fortune 500 companies have set very like green level targets. And you're Almost all of them like any form of detailed plan as to how to actually meet those targets. So I think like setting targets is, is like a very easy thing for an organization. And in fact, I, no, just to, I feel like I might be the one because I work in enterprise organizations. So I feel like I have a little bit more. I just have an insight that might not be available outside. And I think that at some level in an organization, the leadership has got to set the direction of a, of an, of a, of an organization. One of the ways, one I think the very important first step for an organization is for the leadership to come out very publicly, not privately in an email, which they then get ignored, but very publicly mm. say, this is important to us. This is the commitment that we're going to make. So I think that is an important step. That next stuff, I think the money, I don't think people fully understand how money shapes everything. Absolutely everything. And it doesn't even have to be intentional. It's just, this is how our company makes money. A, B, and C earns us money. The whole organization is just absolutely geared towards maximizing. That's what a for-profit company is these days. It's an engine to make money. And so all these promises are off to the side of that rather than the primary thing. And I think this is why regulation is so important. Some advice was given to me a while ago, which is that people, that all they're focusing in is solving their pains, their pain points. And unless you're causing pain, you're not really going to be solved. So regulation is a pain for an organization. So they, if there's regulation on sustainability, they will put effort into resourcing yeah, it. Yes, pain really was in vitamins. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, market forces. 
is a pain. So if your customers are demanding more sustainable features, there's a competitive nature to this. Another organization saying we will do it, that's another pain that you, you do it. And I also argue that employee, internal employee forces are also pain because it's becoming increasingly, the sustainability credential of an organization is becoming increasingly important as one of the metrics talent is using to choose to whether or not to work in an organization. So those are three pain points, I would say, yeah, which counteracts the profit motive, yeah. Yeah, actually, so here's here's one thing I see, because there's an implication here that perhaps neoliberal shareholder capitalism might not be the best mechanism for us to actually get here, right? And uh, I won't go down that particular rabbit hole. We keep on wanting to go into politics. The reason I was saying this is because there's a good point, I assure you. So, for example, we spoke about in technology firms, there is a whole thing about being 24-7 clean energy by 2030, Mm, right? This sounds really like a big thing. Microsoft has this, or they call it 10, 10, 100, I think, or 10, is it what, do you know what Um, it is? is Yeah, it is. I think it's 100, 124, 100% renewable, 100% of the time, I don't, I can't remember. All right, I've actually, I did a talk about this, so I'm embarrassed that I don't actually have the particular thing at hand. I don't think it's, I don't think you should be embarrassed. I think it should be embarrassed. Like, why is every organization choosing a different brand name for exactly the same solution? I don't know. Google mentioned, Google spoke about 24-7 being the key thing that they have. And like the key, if we just step away from the, the words people use, it's basically every hour of every day being matched with renewable generation is the key idea. And Google was one of the leaders for this saying, yeah, we're going to do it by 2030. We think it's hard, but we're just going to manage it. All right. Then Microsoft came in. We are a trillion dollar company. It's going to be hard. I think we're going to get there. And then you look, and then earlier on this year, a small energy firm called Peninsula Clean Energy, based in California, they were like, oh yeah, we're at 99% clean energy matched already. And we're on target to hit 100% by 2025. And here's the model we've used to figure out how to procure this. So this makes me think that, okay, if one organization is able to move literally doing half the time of these large companies, then it suggests that it could be more of a priority and they could move just as quickly as this other organization, which has far fewer resources. And I feel like this is why I this is why, like you said about the governance thing is so important. If it's a priority, you will actually hit, you will absolutely talk about this. And just like you said about like the pain thing, I'm really glad that there is now a really good example of a small, not particularly well-resourced energy firm going so much faster than these trillion dollar companies, because I'm hoping it's going to accelerate them to do this as well. And to an extent, to be fair, some of the funding and some of the work is somewhat funded by some of these organizations. But it does show that if you make it a priority, then you will actually move that quickly. And we totally can do this. It's just a decision that people are choosing not to move as fast as they really need to right now. I, I, I agree. I, I've got two points to say here. One of them is I used to have a statement, which is if you're working in sustainability inside a large organization as, as quickly as possible, you want to make sure that your work is not being supported through what I call grace and favor. So some executive leader, this is a priority for them and they're pushing back the tide and pressure of all these other things saying, this is important to me. I'm making sure that Chris Adams has got the resources to focus on sustainability. That's great. And most things start off with somebody doing that, but you won't get the significant investment unless you kind of align with the rest of the business of the organization. And if that exec leaves, your whole division is just gone. So I always say, great. And I think that we should talk about it next week. I think I wonder if some of the things that are happening in Amazon are 
related to that kind of activity. But the thing I would say, and this is, this is maybe like a call to the people who, who work in startups that are listening to this podcast, because a quite a common piece of feedback I get when, and I talk to a lot of people who are in startups, and I understand the pressure of a startup. You're in survival mode. I mean, this isn't, you're not just sitting back. You're like, you're wondering whether you've got enough money for the next six months, the next year, and is sustainability a priority for you? But I think, Chris, you had a really good point, which is that a smaller entity is far more capable of reaching these targets and these goals, such as the 24-7 hourly matching target, than the larger organizations. If your cloud business is several hundred billion dollars, it's much harder to reach like some sort of energy, just because the market isn't there. You can't even just buy your way out of the solution. But imagine a very small cloud operator. It's much easier for them to achieve those kinds of targets. And I would just encourage you to explore that space a bit more, because I believe if you were to achieve those targets, there is the market pressure there. There is the customers there who would then choose you over the larger organizations. I think that's a missed opportunity for a lot of startups, I see. Yeah. I also, proportionally, it's not that much. So if you, so I did a talk, or I, me and Max Schulzer, he's another one of the members of the Green Software Foundation, we did a really nerdy recorded YouTube video trying to basically deconstructing the cloud model to figure out, okay, how much profit is left over if you really were to step on the accelerator to try to actually achieve 24-7 by 2030. And like Amazon and Microsoft, it's 30% net profit for most of this stuff. There's plenty of cash left over to actually then like redeploy into this stuff. And there's so much policy support both in America now with the infrastructure, the, I, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, right. and yeah. in the UK, uh, uh, in Europe as well, loads of this. Like, I really feel that this is something that you could, that people could move on and people who aren't those companies could quite easily actually compete on this, in my view. Anyway, we're going way into something else because we've got one story left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finally, in, in the news, I think there's a really interesting paper. It's called Counting Carbon, a survey of factors influencing the emissions of machine learning which is one of our favorite topics of this podcast. This is cool, this paper. I'm really yeah. glad you mentioned it. Actually. Excellent. Yeah, okay. So counting carbon, the idea was that there's one woman, Alexandra Sasha Lucioni. She works at Hugging Face in Montreal, Canada, and Alex Hernandez at the University of Montreal. They basically looked at something in the region of 500 papers where people were talking about the different machine learning models they've been creating. And they basically, they sent an email and contacted every single one of the 500 authors of all these papers and said, hi, can you share some information about where this was run, what you used and what and how long it was running for? And they basically came up with some figures saying, these are the key things which will affect the environmental impact of a machine learning model. And they talk about things like, say, the, the source of energy, the amount of training time that's being used, and a couple of other ones. It's a really nice piece. And there are some really surprising things that came out of it, basically. They broke this into five different tasks, kind of buckets of tasks that these machine learning models would do. So like image classification, so which is object detection. So that's like picking out a face in, a, in, in something like that. Or machine translation, which is like what you imagine like Google and all these tools use. Question answering and named entity recognition. I'll be honest, I don't work in AI and ML, so I don't... Oh, hey, yeah, named entity recognition is basically through text, pulling out ideas and concepts. So that's what they were doing. Chris Adams is the speaker of this podcast. Yeah. Chris Adams. So that's there. what they did. And the, there was one thing that surprised me was that of all of these ones, 
The only thing they saw was, of all these ones here, only the image recognition one was the one that there was a strong correlation between the energy use and uh, the accuracy and effectiveness of the models, which was mind-blowing for me. So what is the difference between those models? Logically, those models should function effectively similarly. They're just nodes that you pump numbers in and these weights and all yeah. this other stuff. It's just matrix multiplication. What's the difference in the matrix? It's just I don't more know of it? enough about it to really yeah. talk about it, but the quote, based on the comparison between carbon emissions and performance, we can observe that the only task in which better performance accuracy has systemically yielded more CO2 emissions was image classification, really. So that was one of the key things that kind of blew my mind because you might naively assume that in order for you to have better models, you would need to just burn through huge amounts of energy. And it turns out, no, that's not actually the case. It's much more about the actual design and how people have actually been putting some of this stuff together. Or or it could just be those other types of models, they could just plateau. They could just plateau, whereas image processing is like such a complicated thing. What's in an image is probably a lot harder to understand than what's in a body of text, which is a bit more structured. So what does that mean for chat GPT and large language learning models? Because those are more... This is the thing that was surprising for me. Because you hear about ChatGPT4, ChatGPT3, you hear like, oh, it's used this much more compute time. Like it's now in the, it's now like maybe a hundred times. There's an implication it's a hundred times more effective. And like this paper is basically saying, nah, that's probably not the case. It may be more effective, but the link isn't as strong as you might think. It's not like a one-to-one thing where by doubling the amount of computing you throw at something, you increase it by twice as much. Oh, sorry. So is your argument, so is the argument that those models are not going to get much better the more we compute them? Right. Okay. Yeah. The argument is that yes, throwing computing at something can increase it. But it doesn't hold true that it's a kind of one-to-one correlation and that by doubling the amount of machines you throw at a problem, you double the effectiveness of it. In fact, that's actually the thing they say that's probably not the case a lot of the time. Okay. But the one thing I did catch from reading the paper was they did discuss how, and I think this is interesting for this space as well, was the energy source is a really big, the grid mix effectively, is a really big cause of the emissions that they, they measured, which bodes well for the future. Yeah, it's it, what this kind of implies is that for something like machine learning, where you don't necessarily need, well, you're not, it's not like you're not waiting on the other end, waiting for the stuff to come through. You're training something for a long period of time. And it's kind of, it's something that probably is more interruptible than other fields, right? But that was one of the key things that led to the carbon footprint of the extremely heavy ones is because not only were there was lots of computing, but the actual fuel intensity, the carbon intensity of the fuel was actually a significant one as well. And weirdly, for like a significant number, like 12 of the papers, oil was listed as the primary source of power, like burning oil, which is just, that blew my mind. I didn't know that was actually, I, didn't, I, I don't know where in the world uses oil as their primary fuel for generating power for the grid, basically. But for these folks who were in Montreal, in Quebec, where they have 99% plus renewable energy, that's basically a really good place to be running things. And for folks who might be using Amazon stuff, for example, Amazon have, an, have a Montreal data center. So one of the most effective things you can do, probably run it somewhere where the energy is super clean. Even if you're not able to say, hey boss, we don't necessarily need to be running loads and loads of machines. You say, if you're going to run machines, then running them somewhere where the electricity is very clean is probably one of the most effective ways to reduce the environmental impact of this. That just made me realize, because, you know, a lot of, A, some cloud providers, 
do give you information about how much you know, renewable energy or whatever it is different data centers use. I believe all of them, yes, I do believe, well, I think it's only Google actually. Google provides that data with their market-based measures included into it. I'd be very interested to get a list of all the cloud regions around the world with actual grid mixes or average grid mixes because to answer the questions like that, because I think one of the things we talk about in the SCN and the things is you should be picking, preferably picking just based on the nature of the grid mix, not based on the nature of the offsets that you purchase to... to yeah. Um, that'd be just a really simple thing. Yeah. Okay. So last year we announced where I work an IP to CO2 intensity API specifically to do some of this stuff. Uh, now, yeah. the thing yeah, is yeah. the information that is available for free as in as open data, go works at the country level. And for someone like Canada, this is actually quite an interesting one because let's say that you were looking, oh, I'm going to run everything in Canada. So right next to Quebec is, it's the place with the tar sands. I've totally forgot the name of the province of Canada. Basically two provinces are right next to each other with radically different carbon intensities of power. So if you just say Canada, uh, different you grids. could be running something in Alberta versus Quebec. So Alberta, tar sands, super dirty, super carbon well, uh, tar electricity. Doesn't quite, yeah, uh, that doesn't yeah. sound very green, does it? <laughs> it does and right next to it is Quebec, which is hydro and nukes, which is problematic in its own ways but very low carbon but are you saying are you because like surely what time and other providers like they provide the carbon intensity data by grid level not by country when you mentioned that what were you talking so about? for this one here i actually think that what time does provide the figures at the kind of grid level so i think the term is like either a balancing organization yeah, or a, ba or balancing, a balancing, balancing authority so yeah. they will provide some of these numbers i think those are the marginal numbers you would actually see but as far as I'm aware, I don't know of any open data source that provides a higher resolution. Open than that. source, right? Sorry, and that's no, the thing. Okay. Like, right, right. you could be using what time stuff for like e either to experiment with, but as soon as you want to put them into production, you have to pay for. There's a fee for that, and I don't know where that data is at a kind of free level like that right now. And I think that's a thing that's really missing because in many cases you've got to ask yourself, how many times do you have to pay for this information? You pay once through the, your use of the energy bills, right? You're paying once there. In many cases, you're paying through like taxation so it to be generated and then to be like repackaged again so you can use it. It feels like surely this should just be a kind of universally open thing that people are able to use, especially if it's like the stakes are this high and it has this much of an impact. Yeah. Something I think access to this, and I and I love what I think they do. And like th th these are great organizations, and they have to keep the lights on one way or another. So I, I I do understand it, but it would definitely benefit the world if a lot of this data was more readily available. It might actually be with with Canada, to be honest. I mean, I'm probably just being lazy. Yeah, they provide a useful useful service, and there's an API and stuff for it. But this feels like stuff which I I feel like every single government everywhere in the world should be publishing this stuff automatically as open data. Or the UN because it make does it, it makes it because yeah. you can still provide value added services on top of that. You can still do stuff like that. But for it to be something which is so difficult and so not not particularly open in lots of parts of the world is a real problem for the policy discussion. Because this is actually one thing that going back to the paper that the paper mentioned. This paper said, okay, all our models, all the kind of large learning models or machine learning models, there was zero representation from South America or Africa. All right. So that's as in, as in so those models were not run. The models published, all the, that were shared in papers, 
were from universities or from institutions right. in either North America, even what you might refer to as say Western Europe or China or in or the the kind of North America, more North American continent. And it's not like there's no one living in Africa and there's no one living in South America and they don't have opinions and they're not doing this kind of research. It just means that there's a whole bunch of things that we're missing out on because access to this stuff is not available. Okay, thank you, Chris. I think there's one other thing that I just want to mention before we finish our podcast, which is the meetup program that we're launching in the Green Software Foundation. So one of the things that we would really like for there to be is a global network of people who are just shared similar interests. We're meeting up on green software, different places all over the world. And we actually have a meetup program, which means that we pay for, if you know what meetup is, meetup is a platform which enables people to, to meet up. And we pay for the costs of running a group on Meetup. And we actually have about 25, 26, 27 Meetup groups there. A bunch of them are looking for organizers. A bunch of those groups have now become the active. We're looking for organizers for them. We're actually willing to also launch a Meetup group in your area. And if this is something you're interested in, if you're interested in organizing a Meetup group, if you're interested in helping out with a Meetup group, if you're even just interested in joining a Meetup group speaking to find out... Speaking for one of the Meetup or groups. speaking for one of the Meetup groups, really anything. I personally have built and grown multiple Meetup groups in London, and it's incredibly rewarding. Meeting up with people with shared similar interests is a Realizing really great they way... they have legs. Realizing, mostly. <laughs> Realizing yeah. they have legs. And especially in this space, Space, I'd say, because we're in a very challenging space. It can at times be quite hard to stay motivated even sometimes. But I think I find that meeting people with similar interests is a very empowering thing. So if this is something you're interested in, please visit meetup.greensoftware.foundation and you'll find like a bunch of resource information and uh, about how to get involved. So that's just the call to action here. If you want to get involved in our meetup program, visit meetup.greensoftware.foundation. Yeah, cool. And I suppose I just realized... With the meetup thing you're doing, if you were to choose to run an event somewhere, you've probably got a list of people you could ask already with the Speakers Bureau. So that make it a bit easier to find. Yeah, exactly. That's why we launched the Speakers Bureau, because to help the meetup program, that was one of the primary reasons, because we, we have a speakers, I've mentioned before, the Speakers Bureau works very closely with the meetup program. And just as I understand it, the Speakers Bureau, you don't need to be a member of the Green Software Foundation to be part of it, do you? You can be, as long as you've been doing research or you are able to talk about this and confident talking about this field, you can get yourself listed. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the same goes actually for the Meetup program. You do not need to be a member of the GSF to be a, an organiser of a Meetup group. Oh, cool. That's handy. I get an ex- that's a nice be thing to end this on. I said, I'm up for that. And I see, I think you're listed. And I think I'm listed. I can't remember if in I am. Speaker, in the Speakers Bureau. Yeah, you're listed. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. In that case, I guess that's one way to ask <laughs> if you want me to speak at one of the events you always seem to speak at one of the events or even yeah. Anne. And yeah. while this is being recorded in February, if there's something happening in March, I might be around to actually be doing a talk in London about that mm, stuff yeah. as well. Yeah. So that's all for this episode of The Week in Green Software. All the resources for this episode and more about the Green Software Foundation are in the show description below, or you can visit greensoftware.foundation. That's greensoftware, one word, dot the symbol foundation in your browser. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Five stars. Five, five stars. stars. Absolutely. Leaving a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Your feedback is incredibly valuable and helps us reach a wider audience. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. All right, take care, Sam. Take care. Everyone. Bye. Bye.
Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Environment Variables on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave a rating and review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show, and of course, we want more listeners. To find out more about the Green Software Foundation, please visit greensoftware.foundation. Thanks again, and see you in the next episode.